Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn again to Proverbs chapter 8. And, um, you know, last week we, uh, we looked at one of the most profound set of principles in all of the Bible in chapter 8, verse 17. And uh, there was two aspects that we talked about it, and each one of these sections uh, has a couple of different pr- principles you want to look at. But the first one we looked at was building a relationship with God that's real, a relationship with God that is based on the principles of knowing Him, you know, in a very intimate way. And a lot of people know the Bible, but not everybody who knows the Bible uh, really knows the author of the Bible on a, in a personal way. I don't mean they're not saved. I mean they just don't have that relationship with Him that they, they really need. And uh, then we saw one of the greatest promises and uh, one of the greatest guarantees in all of the Bible for us as parents in relationship to our children. And it was based around the verse that said, those that seek me early shall find me. And we talked about providing a vision for your child to find God early in their life and giving them basically every advantage uh, to help them. And then you remember, I I brought you through a process of five basic stages uh, in the development of your child and how that you are to um, be on top of those stages and, and bring those into their lives from them, their childhood right up to their adulthood. And we talked about how it was your absolute guarantee in the Bible, and basically there's uh, only a few guarantees in the Word of God, and, you know, and that are absolute, and certainly that is one of them. And to guarantee that there'll be everything that God wants them to be, but it's conditional on the fact that we as parents are everything to our children that God wants us to be. And it was a great, great set, and I got a lot of good comments about it, and a lot of people really, I think, learned and gleaned some things from it, just simply talking about developing good parenting skills. In our church, that's so vital because of all the young couples that we have and all the children that God blesses us with here. Now, today, we're going to move on in our text, and you remember I broke chapter 8, verses 7 through 21. That was our original passage. I broke that down into seven sections. That would be easier to uh, grasp and more, make it more convenient for laying it all out. And last week, when we looked at verse 17, that was section 5. And today, we'll look at verses 18, uh, 19, 20, and 21. And that'll be our last two sections, section 6 and 7. And uh, I want to tell you, and I, I, and I like things like this in the Bible for my own personal thing, but you're going to find in this section here, or uh, this last, last, these last two sections, we're going to find three key words for us as Christians. I, I like studies like that. I like things about the Bible that when I study them, that I don't necessarily, because I won't, remember everything that was said, but I can take those three key words uh, and they will jog my memory, and, and they'll mean something to me differently than they maybe meant before based on what I heard about them. So I, uh, you're going to find out, and I'll point them out to you as we come through this today. But uh, we want to read, uh, again, we're going to read the entire text to get a context of everything here, even though we're going to talk about the last section here just so that we understand where we're at. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Proverbs 8, verse 7. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. 
They are all plain to him that understandeth, and write to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine, and sound wisdom. I am understanding, I have strength. By me kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. And you remember, that's where we preached last week. So from 18 on here is where we're going to talk about today. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. Now, Father, we ask you today to quiet our hearts, to open up our minds, and, Lord, to let us put aside the things that uh, so preoccupy us so many times that we can't always hear everything that God wants to say to us. We know that you have a message for us today, something that we all want to learn and grow through and, and become more like you. So help us today. We come to you asking you, beseeching you to open up our understanding and open up our hearts. We love you and thank you now and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, number six will be verses 18 and 19. And he says there in verse 18, riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. Now, he says riches and honor. You know, the thing that I love about the Bible is the Bible contains its own value system. It really does. Uh, it's, a, it's a great set of values. Uh, and the best thing about it for us, and fortunately for us, is those values, they never really change in life. They're always the same. When you look at America, if you want to know fundamentally, anyhow, what's wrong with America, uh, it's, it's simple as the fact that America has lost her value system. She has no value on anything anymore that's any good. I, I go to Walmart a lot. I love Walmart, and uh, I enjoy going to Walmart because uh, you never know what's those blue lights when they have those blue light specials. But anyway, I enjoy Walmart immensely. <coughs> I enjoy Walmart immensely, but I, I've always thought to myself, especially when you're waiting in, ch in the checkout line, you know, that's the only downside. You know, they, don't, they got 500 checkouts, but only three people are working that day. <coughs> But I, I, I watch as you go up and they, they scan all that stuff and everything now is, is, is barcoded. You know, everything is, and I've often thought to myself while I'm waiting patiently in line, impatiently in line, uh, wondering why this person up here only got three things but it's taken her an hour and a half to check out because she can't find where her money's at. She probably doesn't have any money, but anyway, she, that's the deal. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, looking all around at this huge, gigantic store, and I'm thinking how much fun it would be to go in there at night and change all the prices on everything. <laughs> to put all the barcodes, just go in there and have all night long. And, you know, the next morning when they open, somebody comes in and, and buys a, a, a roll of paper towels and they scan it, it comes up to be $433. And somebody buys a 42-inch color television set and they scan it and it 
$1.99. I mean, I would just step back and be absolutely uh, hilarious about uh, that because what happened, what I would do is change all the values of things. And, you know, while America was so preoccupied with everything that it should not be preoccupied with and pastors and churches were preoccupied with the things that they shouldn't be, you know what the devil did? He changed all the barcodes on all of the things. And now we set high prices on things that are worthless and put no value on things that are invaluable. And that's America's problem. You know, Christianity has done the same thing. You know, Isaiah faced it with the nation of Israel when he was talking to Israel back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 5.20. He said, you know what? He says, the things that are the wrong things you've made right and the right things you've made wrong things. And that's the problem in Christianity today. The Christianity has lost the value. You know, there's no greater value to a Christian than the Word of God. I don't know of anything that is more of a value than the Bible to you and me. And yet, how many churches do you go to that you really get the Bible? You'll get a great song service. You'll get a stupendous choir. You'll get, uh, you know, you'll get a, a, a praise band that'll knock your socks off if you're wearing socks anymore today. But you won't get the Bible. We've lost our values in it. The church has lost its value system. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, 17, that the church says, hey, I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. I don't have need of anything. Yet the Bible says that they know not that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know why they're in that condition? They've lost their value system. But you know what? This is why here at Old Paz Baptist Church, we just stick with the Bible. Amen. The Bible never loses its value system. Men may lose it, churches may lose it, America may lose it, but if you stick with the book, the book never changes its values. I've met people all my life that change their value system and they move on. They come to church for a while and they get excited about it, but then something else takes their attention and they, their value system goes away and they're gone. But the thing that I thank God for every day, and you should too, is the book that God gave us never changes. The values today are the same as they were thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago. It doesn't matter. And you'll remember when we came through Proverbs chapter 4, verse 2, where he said there that I, I give you good doctrine. And we spent a whole Sunday on the importance of Bible doctrine in your life. The word doctrine means to teach. Because we need Bible doctrine. We need the clear truth of the Word of God laid out for us. Because if we don't have that and something that doesn't change, then we, our value system gets swayed. Luke chapter 16, verse 15 has always been a great verse of mine. It says, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God's value system is not my value system. And my value system, not always, unfortunately, is God's value system. It's different. It's different. And uh, what we think is great, God thinks is terrible. And so that comes down to the value system. And you want to remember that the book of Proverbs fundamentally is about two men. In all that we study, you want to always keep that in the back of your mind. It's fundamentally about two men, a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man gets God's wisdom, he gets God's understanding, and he goes through life with the light of God. The fool, he never learns anything from God. He never learns anything from his mistakes. 
He's unteachable. Uh, he's undisciplined and he's unstructured. So he just goes through life without any light, without any wisdom, losing his value system, and he just keeps making the same mistakes over and over again. Verse 18 says, riches and honor are with me. So when you get with God in that deep doctrinal sense, I'm not talking about the fluffy, inspirational that we have today. You're going to find today that in most churches in Christianity, that's what people want. They don't want any depth of the Bible. They don't want any, any deep things of God. They, they want the surface stuff. They want the inspirational stuff. And when a person just loves the inspirational stuff, what it says about himself is that he really doesn't want to study his Bible. Amen. He just wants the stuff that's so uh, inspirational that, that will give him the light things of the Word of God. And of course, you don't build a relationship with God. It has to be based on the doctrine, the meat of the Bible. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, that, that, uh, that uh, he that has the milk of the Word of God, that's the inspirational. It says he's unskillful in the Word, but the Bible says strong meat. Bible doctrine belongs to him who by reason of use has exercised his senses to discern good and evil. And that's where we want to get. The riches and honor in a spiritual sense come right along with a relationship with God. You know, people ask me all the time, and, and, and good people who want to learn the Bible, and they want to have a relationship with God, and they want to get the principles down. I have people all the time ask me, you know what, what can I do to learn the Word of God and learn the principles? Well, obviously you have to study, and we have a number of things around here uh, that are, are designed for that, to give you that. But obviously, the greatest thing you can do that you'll just pick it up as you go is just work at building that relationship with God that he wants you to have. And without a doubt, the two greatest things that a man can have that represent riches and honor are the wisdom of God and the understanding of God. You see it in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 is probably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible that illustrates this. We know that Daniel was taken captive along with the Hebrew children. It is such a beautiful picture because uh, the Bible clearly tells us that they were of the king's seed. They're, they were the aristocracy of Israel. And in a spiritual sense, they picture you and me because you're of the king's seed if you're born again here this morning. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, Babylon representing the world system and Nebuchadnezzar representing the devil, what he wanted to do is he wanted to take from them everything that God had given them. And the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 very clearly, and it's a great study, how he wanted to give them the things of Babylon, i.e. the world, and then feed them this stuff because he knew it would corrupt them. Daniel was smart enough, Daniel was wise enough that God gave him insight and understanding. And what he did was that he went to the king and he said, look, let us continue to eat the things of God. Let us continue here. And then at the end of a period of time, put us up against the very best you have in Babylon. And let's see who's better in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Well, the king agreed to it. And at the end of that period of time, you had the king's people who were eating all the slop of Babylon. And you had Daniel and the boys who were eating the things of God, picture of the word of God. And when the king put them together at the end of that time, you know what? Daniel and the boys were 10 times better than what the world offered. 
You want to be better than the world? You want to be 10 times better than the world? You want to be better and smarter than the world system? Stay with God. Stay with the Lord. You'll never go wrong. Remember the movie Back to the Future? Michael J. Fox. I like Michael J. Fox. I don't know how he's doing. I know he had Parkinson's disease, but he's a nice guy. I don't remember which one it was because it's been years ago since that movie comes out. And I'm not sure why you're laughing that he's got Parkinson's disease. Then he's a nice guy. But uh, maybe you know something about him. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know if it was one or two. They made a bunch of them. But remember in one of them that he goes into the future and he's with that crazy guy and they're, they're doing something around there and he goes into a sports memorabilia shop 200 years ahead and he finds the sports book that listed who all won the ball game for the last 200 years and he grabs onto that book because he knows now he can go back into his own time and now he can make bets on all the teams knowing who won. In other words, he got a book out of the future that showed him what was going on in his life, and it was a sure bet. You know that's exactly what you got with the Bible? You know, you got a book here that God will show you the events that are going to happen before they happen. You got a book here that shows you exactly what's taking place. Isaiah 42 verse 9 says, before new things come up, I'm going to show you what they are. And God's wisdom and understanding is exactly like that little cut in that movie. It'll show you the inside of what really is going on and what's really happening before it happens or after it happens. That's the wisdom and the understanding of God. Now look at the last part of verse 18, and here's our first word. Here's our first word. I like this word. Yea, durable riches and righteousness. You know, I love the word durable. I mean, I really do. I mean, that, it, it means that it lasts. The Bible says that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word abideth forever. You know that in life there are some things that, that money can't buy? We were out, took the kids out to eat the other night, and, and, and we were over there at some place getting yogurt. I don't like yogurt, but they were eating yogurt, and I got a cup of coffee, and they were in the candy store, and I was sitting there. But I'm always looking at things, and in the window, there was a little sign, and I thought, you know what? I got my little phone up because I can't remember them. I see a great quote or hear a great quote, and I'll say, man, I can use that. And then 20 minutes later, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> So I got my little, I found out on my little phone, my little flip phone. I don't have an iPhone. I got a little flip phone. But I found out you got a recorder on there. So now when I see something, I just speak into it. Then I can listen to it later. But we were walking down there, and I was sitting down there, and I was just looking around. They were in there buying popcorn. And, uh, you know, uh, and on, the, on the window there was a little sign that says, the most important things in life are not things. You know that's true? You know, there's some things in life that money can't buy. You know that money can't buy you health? I've known guys that were multi-billionaires, and they still all die. You may prolong it by getting the best doctors and getting a heart transplant or getting it. At the end of the day, the best thing you can invest in is a really nice casket because you're going to die. I mean, you can't buy contentment. You can't buy peace. You can't buy happiness. You certainly can't buy joy. You can't buy fulfillment. You can't buy satisfaction. Money can't fix your marriage when it's busted. Marriage can't get your, money can't get your kids saved. Money can't keep you, uh, keep them after they do get saved. There's some things in life that are absolutely 
for sure money can't buy. But I love the word durable riches because God's durable riches, they last. We're in a world of a, where, where from time to time inflation goes crazy. You know inflation may hurt your bank account. Your dollar bill may be only worth 60 cents, but this book is worth $100 million 100,000 years ago, and it'll be a win 100,000 years from today. You see, inflation can't affect it. We're in the middle of a recession, or coming out of a recession. I'm not sure what a recession is. I'm not sure what a depression is. Guy said to me one time, well, I'll tell you the difference between a recession and a depression. I said, what is it? He says, a recession is when you're out of work, a depression is when I'm out of work. Okay, I get that, see? But you know, in a time of recession and a time of depression, it won't affect God's true durable riches. They're going to last. You know, nobody can steal it from you. Nobody. Now, in the Bible, when it talks about gold, silver, and precious stones, in a spiritual sense, now, those things are durable. Nobody can take them from you. And we need something that is real in our lives. We need something that will last in a world where nothing lasts. Oh, I know, you can go out and buy something and, and do this or do that, and somebody, it'll last for a little while, but then it doesn't. You get tired of it. There needs to be something that is durable in our lives. And I really like the word durable, because when you take the durable riches of God and you put them in your life, and this is where I'm going with this, the durable riches will always produce durable Christians. And that's what we need today. Christians that can stand the test of time in this old world and all that it offers and all that it hits them with. You know, years ago, and some of you will remember this uh, that were with me back then, but years ago, uh, we developed a, a mission project program where we actually took the discipleship lessons that we use here and uh, we, we, we launched out on a worldwide deal to take it to churches all around the world. And uh, I took about 300 people, and we trained them rigorously. I mean, we put them through some of the worst training and the hardest training that you could ever hope to go through because we knew we were sending them into some of the armpit places of the world. I mean, we were going to places like Africa, where you out in the bush. We were going to places like South Africa. We were going to the places like Kiev. This is right after the wall had come down, the Berlin Wall. We went to Kiev and the Ukraine. We went to France. We were in places like San Salvador and Guatemala. We were in Romania. We were in Hungary. We were in the Philippines. Uh, we were in uh, all the places that around the world, in Korea. All those places that were very primitive places. And these people had to, be, had to go for 10 days and they, they had to stay sharp. They had to be everything they needed to be because they had a job they had to do. We trained them unbelievably rigorously. And we built it. I built it around four concepts that I instilled in them through every step of the way. And there's people here today that know I'm telling you the absolute truth because they were part of that. We, we took four terms and we, we brainwashed them with them. We, the first term was Flexibility. The second term was adaptability. The third term was compatibility. And the fourth term was durability. They had to be flexible and adapt to every circumstance they get to. I had a team one time that was in Romania. And they were 15, 10, 15 miles from the airport. On the morning they were to fly out, 
there was a labor strike in the city. And all of the buses, all of the transportation shut down. Now, these guys had to make that flight at 1 o'clock. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. There's no transportation, nobody to get them there. But because they had these concepts built into them, because they were flexible and adaptable and compatible, and most of all, they were durable. You know what they did? Everybody traveled with backpacks. It was like a military operation. Everybody packed up, got ready to go. They had time to get there, and they humped the 15 miles to the airport on foot, never missed their flight. That's what they had to be able to do. They had to be able to work together. They had to be able to adapt every circumstance under extremely harsh conditions sometimes. I remember one time we got into Africa after flying all day and all night for two days. And I mean, we were all just dead tired from jet lag and everything. And they took us to where we were staying. And I'll tell you what, pigs wouldn't stay in that place. It was the most, I was looking for black mamas and green mamas in the rafters. I mean, this place was a thatched hut that had absolutely nothing in it. It was absolutely dirt floor, and we were dead tired. The mattresses were nothing but springs on wooden beds with, um, with no mattresses. We had to stuff paper, newspaper, and bags to, for pillows. It was the absolute worst thing in your life. Well, what are you going to do? Go down to the Holiday Inn? There is no Holiday Inn. There ain't no holiday at all. These people had to learn how to stay the course because on those kind of trips, when one person couldn't cut it, when one person let it down and let let the whole team down, two people had to pick it up and carry the work. They They had to be flexible and adaptable and compatible, and they had to be durable. But you know what? I've looked back on that many, many times, and I understand that that worked very well. But at the same time I look at that, I say to myself, every Christian ought to be just like that every day of your life. God has things he wants to do with you and me that takes that kind of durability in our lives. And most of God's people today simply do not have the riches that are the durable riches. And I'll tell you why we should be that way. Because whether you know it or not, and I don't know where you're at with everything, but you have a Bible that is durable. You know how down through the... Uh, The 4,000 years of the Word of God, uh, 5,000 years when Moses wrote it up to now, you know how many people tried to get rid of that book? You know how many people hated that book? You know what they've said about that book? How men, thousands, hundreds of thousands, about millions of men down through the course of time have spent their whole lives trying to change and get rid of this one book. And you know what? They're long dead and in hell. That book still stands. You know why? Because it's durable. It's durable. It's durable. I'll tell you something else. Israel's durable. Boy, I'll tell you what. It doesn't matter who goes against them. It doesn't matter who tries to wipe them out. They are durable. They've endured 6,000 years of persecution of people and the devil trying to use nations to wipe them out. The Egyptians tried it, the Hittites tried it, the Jebusites tried it, the Philistines tried it, everybody tried it. And you know what? They're all dead and gone in the dust of the earth and Israel still stands. You know why? Because they're durable. You see, they're durable because the riches of God are durable. The church is durable. 
I don't know what you know about church history, but I'm telling you what, when the church started in the book of Acts, the first thing the devil tried to do was wipe it out. He killed more God's people in the first 500 years or 1,000 years of Christianity. I mean, he wiped them out by the millions. He tried everything he could do to stop the work of God, but he didn't because God will always have his faithful remnant. And no matter what happens, there will always be a remnant of God's people, whether it's Israel or the church, that will be durable. We ought to be durable. We ought to be durable. God's people should be durable, and they can be, because his riches are durable when their life is built on those great principles. Having God's value system in our lives, the durable riches. Now look at verse 19. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. Now here's our second key word that I want you to get down. And it's the word revenue. Simply in our lives, putting in the lowest bottom common denominator, simply in your life and my life, once you become a Christian and you take of the riches of God, making a good investment for God in your life. Turning a profit, so to speak. Turning a profit in my life on the investment God has made in me through salvation. You notice in the Bible how uh, God's wisdom and and knowledge and all that stuff is talked about and, and laid out as gold. That's a monetary thing. Silver, that's a monetary. Precious stones, that's a monetary. It's even talked about as merchandise and revenue. They're all terms in the Bible used to go along with the idea that when you get saved, you're supposed to make a spiritual investment with what God invested in you. There's a, many examples in the Bible, but in the, in the Bible in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, you have the story of the pounds. Uh, and over there in, in Matthew 25, you have the exact same story, except it's the talons. And they're both forms of money. And you know the story. I don't have to read it to you. But it illustrates my point. God comes down and he got three guys. And he gives the one guy, each guy a pound. He says, here's your pound, here's your pound, and here's your pound. And then he goes away into a far country. Now that's a picture of God giving you and me, when you got saved, the measure of grace. And God wants you to do that measure of grace is develop it. He wants you to invest it. He wants you invested in his word, in this church. He wants to take the measure of grace and the measure of faith that he's put in your life, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, and he wants you to do something with it. When the Lord comes back in that story, he calls these three guys up and he says, okay, boys, what did you do? The one guy says, you gave me one pound, I invested it, I got 10 back for you. The other guy comes up and he says, well, you gave me one pound and I didn't do as good as him, but I got five pounds for you. The third guy, when he comes up, he says, you know what? I just kept the pound you gave me. I didn't do anything with it. And that's the way a lot of God's people look at what God has given them. God made an investment in us. He saved us for a purpose. And we need to turn a profit for him in our lives, spiritually speaking. We need to to generate some revenue. 
We need to revenue, make some revenue in our life where we, we, we do something. God gave you that measure of faith and grace and some of God's people 10 years. I've known people that 10 years after they were saved didn't know anything more about the Bible, weren't any closer to God, hadn't won one person to Christ, hadn't done one thing in their life. You know what they did? They're just like that guy that had the one pound. They just hid it, buried it, and kept it. God wants you to produce some revenue. When you get his riches and his grace and you get that stuff that's likened to money, that's the true riches, he wants you to make an investment with it. He didn't give you what he's given you and me so we could just sit on it. Last week was anniversary Sunday. I don't remember who it was. I think it might have been Tabby because she always thinks this way. And it was, a it, you know, to most people it would be a goofy little thing. But to me, it, I, I love things like this because I love any time that somebody, I can find that they're paying attention to what I'm saying. But you remember how we ate last week. And, and, and Jamie had no knowledge of how she did this and the ladies that did this. But you walked into the big barn there and the, the sandwiches, the main course was here and here. And then over on this side, there was, there was the, uh, all the substance stuff, the salad, rabbit food, the beans, and all this stuff. And on the other side, on this long set of tables, was all the pogey bait. Who knows what pogey bait is? Nobody knows what pogey bait is. Bill knows. John knows. Kurt knows. Anybody know? Well, pogey bait in the Army is candy or anything that you're not allowed to eat. And that's what they call it. But all there was all the desserts. And I, I think it was Tabby. It was somebody. And they came up to me and they said, wow, Bob, this is just like what you teach in the Bible. And I said, well, what do you mean? I didn't get it. And they said, well, look, you got the main course right here. That'd be your Bible doctrine. And then you got to make a choice. Once you get the Bible, the sandwich, the main course, then you got to look over here and see the good stuff to eat. Or you got to look over here and see the bad stuff to eat. It's just like the Bible. Once you get the word of God, then you got to make a choice. Now, I must say, she said that having a plate full of dessert. <laughs> so I'm not putting too much stock in her theology behind what your statement was. But I got the point. Because life is just like that. That's exactly what life is like. It's, like, it's just like you, you, you take and you stewardship. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night. It's simply taking the investment that God had made in you and then doing something with it by the choices that we make. Looking at the good choices and the bad choices. Just like you had to sit there and say, am I going to get some stable food or am I going to get some food that, uh, you know, that I probably shouldn't be eating, but we all did. But it is just the same way. Look at verse 19. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold. Now, here's where, again, here's where you see what I've been saying all through here about the gold and the silver uh, likened to fruit. Because he says, my fruit is better than gold. And the fruit here he's making a reference to obviously is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 33. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. When you get the gold and the riches and the true riches in your life, the durable riches, and you make an investment and produce a revenue for God, these are the natural nine things that come into your life called the fruit of the Spirit. 
You can't buy these. You can't buy biblical love. You can't buy biblical joy. You can't buy biblical peace or biblical long-suffering or gentleness or goodness or faith or meekness or temperance. You can't buy those with, with physical money. You can't go someplace and swipe your credit card and get those things into your life. But those things will come into your life when you recognize that God's fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, is better than gold and you start making the investments of your life in those things instead of the things of the world. Now, that's the fruit he's talking about. And there's nothing on this earth that can compare to it. That's the true riches. Put these nine things in your life, and, you, you, and you'll become someone who's durable. You'll be able to get through the circumstances of life. You'll be able to get to the point in your life where uh, you can be bent by the wind, but never broken by the wind. Now, section 7. Chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. I lead in the way of righteousness, he says, in the midst of the paths of judgment. Now, here's a great principle on understanding the leading of God in your life. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and look at that verse, because that verse is loaded. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment. Now, I hear people talk all the time, and I like to listen to people talk. They'll talk about, well, you know, the Lord led me to do this. Or, brother, the Lord just leading me. I'm just following the leading of the Lord, brother. That always gets my attention. People will use little phrases like that in the Bible. If you ain't figured this out yet. See, that's, a, that's one of them phrases in the Bible that you can use to make yourself look spiritual when you want to do whatever you want to do. Because who in the right mind is going to question your leading of the Lord? I'm not. Somebody says, well, the Lord led me to do this. You think I'm going to jump in your face and say, well, I don't think so? First of all, I don't care. I mean, you make your own choices. I mean, but the bottom line is, I know how people use that. I've had it all my life. I've heard people say, well, I believe the Lord leading me to do this. And it always amazed me how God made some of the biggest blunderous mistakes you ever saw in your life with those people. That God was leading them, but when it didn't work out down the line, it was still God leading them. You know, there's some point in your life where you got to man up and say, you know what, I blew this thing. It wasn't God leading me at all. It was me wanting to do it for whatever motive I had or whatever reason I had. So I just used this verse to hide behind it because the leading of the Lord is not a mysterious thing in the Bible. It's really not. It, but when, when people don't know the Bible, it's one of those mysterious things then, you see. The leading of the Lord. God is leading me. Oh, yes, he is. Well, how am I going to argue with that? Well, he's leading me to do this, brother. I got to do what God leads me to do. Okay. But I, I always, I, I know how that thing, it's like prayer. I, mean, I talked about this Thursday night. It's like the concept of prayer. When people say, well, I, I know uh, people in my life that I've known over the years, and uh, they, they want to, uh, personally, I don't think they're very spiritual, but that's my own personal opinion. But they're going around and they're always telling everybody, well, I pray about everything. I pray about everything. 
they'll get up in the pulpit and they'll say, well, I pray about everything. There's nothing that I don't pray about. Now, I know that if you're a young Christian, that sounds really good to you. Who wouldn't be impressed with somebody who prays about everything? I mean, if you don't know anything about the Bible and you hear somebody say, well, I pray about everything, you're going to think that that's somebody really spiritual. But if you really know your Bible and you really understand the Scriptures, you realize that you don't have to pray for everything because almost everything you're asking God is already in a book that God gave you. I've had people say, well, I've been praying to the Lord for an answer. God hasn't given me an answer, and I don't know what's wrong. I always ask them, are you in the Bible? Oh, no, no, I'm not in the Bible. I'm too busy praying. Well, how do you think he's going to answer you? I told him Thursday night, you think you're going to be driving home from work and an Air Force jet's going to be flying across the sky and Holy Spirit of God is going to come down and grab a hold of them controls, turn on his smoke afterburners and write your answer in the sky? How does God answer us? He answers us through the principles of the Word of God. Somebody says, well, I'm praying about it. You don't have to pray about it. He told you what to do. Does anybody here have to pray about being a soul winner? Somebody says, well, I'm praying about this. Well, I guarantee you, there's a set of principles in the Bible for every decision you and I have to make. Now, if you want to pray about something, I'd pray about, oh, God, Sweating tears over this book. Show me in here the principle that I need. Because that's the only way he's going to talk to you. He's not going to come down in a dream. You're not going to get the Kansas City Star and get over there in Billy Graham's column, my answer. You're not going to get it from Heloise or Ann Flanders or Landers or whatever her name is. You're going to get it from a book that is the durable riches that will sustain you. That when you have some decision in life that you got to make, you got to go to the book and get the principle for it. This is why I beat you six ways from Sunday, nicely most of the time, to get you to learn biblical principles. They're the only thing that's going to carry you through. Somebody says, well, if you don't, Bible says pray without, pray without ceasing. If you don't have to pray about all those things, Bob, then what should, you, how, what should I be praying without ceasing? How about just taking eight hours a day and telling him how much you love him? That'd work for you, wouldn't it? That'd probably get you an answer faster than anything else. I'm always impressed when people start to say, and my ears perk up, when people say, well, the Lord's lead me. The leading of the Lord. Well, I mean, I mean, based on the verse, and I know, I, I know it's a terrible thing to do to bring the Bible into this. But based on the verse, the only way you can really have the leading of the Lord is to have, number one, the righteousness. That's knowing what's right in the Bible. Then it says the paths of judgment. That's knowing what's wrong in the Bible. In other words, there it is. You want to make a decision. You want to have the leading of the Lord in your life about everything that you do. You've got to have a value system to know what is right first and what is wrong second. And then make your choice based on the principle. It's that simple. You don't have to worry all the time and say, well, the leading of the Lord. The leading of the Lord comes down to simply this. God will lead you by the principles that he gives you in that book. You want a couple of good verses on it? 
Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18 says, Every purpose is established by counsel, and with good advice, make war. Now, that's a great one. You have a purpose in life? Do you want to have a purpose in life? Were you asking God for the leading of God in your life, for a purpose in your life? Good. That's established by counsel, with good advice. Proverbs 24, 6 says, By wise counsel thou shalt make thy war, and a multitude of counselors there is safety. Now, I'll tell you what we do with that. We go get our advice from people just like us because they'll tell us what we want to hear. We'll go find Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, and we'll get advice from him because we know that he's as far away from the Bible as it can be, and we'll find a latitude that we need. Let me tell you something. When it talks about established by counsel and by wise counsel uh, in a multitude of counselors, he gave you 66 counselors in this book. And they're free. And your problem won't run out when your money runs out. Because it's durable. It's it's durable. And it'll get you through. Getting to the place where you only operate by the principles. And when you don't clearly understand the principles, then you go to the Word of God and get the principles. And you operate by them. When you don't have a clear principle, don't make a clear decision. My mama used to say, don't make big decisions when, uh, when it's not clear or when you're confused or when you're really tired. Make them when you're clear in your mind. And the clearest mind you'll ever have on the clearest day of your life will be the mind of Christ. Make your decisions based on his principles. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of judgment. You have the righteousness of God, what's right, the judgment of God, or what's wrong. When you learn those two about every situation and circumstance in life and get the principles, that's how God leads you. God never leads, listen to me, God never leads outside his principles. He just simply does not. Verse 21. That I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasure. Now, here's my third word. I love this word. Now, in a doctrinal reference, that verse, verse 21, obviously, is dealing with the judgment seat of Christ. And it deals, obviously, with our inheritance. I get that in a doctrinal way. But for those of you who only like the inspirational and only like the practical, uh, this, is a, this is a great word, and it's our third word, and I love the word substance. Christians with substance. What a novel idea. And I'm going to take just a few minutes now and preach on substance for just a little bit, if you don't mind. I've not really done any preaching this morning. i just kind of been exercising myself and getting the kinks out. But this is my favorite word of the three. So allow me a little latitude today. I won't be long. We're going to be out of here in good time. And, and I won't step on too many toes because most of you had them amputated when you had frostbite. So it won't be a problem. <laughs> Men and women and families that have a set of biblical values. Christianity and Christians today, and I, I, I speak taking a lot of, uh, most of you into consideration that you're, 
you know, you're here for a specific reason. So don't take, I mean, as the old saying goes, if the shoe fits, wear it. But, uh, but um, I'm just telling you here. Christians and Christianity today, for the most part, are so weak and wishy-washy, there's absolutely no substance to them. Nothing durable about them. Last week, we started our 11th year. And uh, for those of you who've been around from day one or in between or eight or nine years, I remember very clearly laying out and told everybody when I started this church uh, from the very beginning, and I've mentioned it on a regular basis, that I told you from the day get-go that uh, in my mind, this church was not for everybody. I understand that. Nothing personal, but it's by design that way. Because I know that my style of ministry and my cut and where I come from in the world that we live in today, there's only a certain kind of person that will gravitate, put up, regurgitate uh, this style of ministry. Because I'll be honest with you, I am only looking for a certain kind of people. I'm just being upfront with you. I'm just being honest. I've never been interested in quantity. How many? I've always been focused on quality, the best of the best. In the Bible, one of the greatest chapters, I think, on this to illustrate it is 2 Samuel chapter 23, where it lists the David's mighty men of valor. And not only lists the mighty men of valor, but the deeds that they undertook as mighty men of valor. Now, you want a good study on durability and substance? There it is. You see, there was Israel's army, and then there were these guys. There were Israel's army, who was the army of Israel who fought. And they were everyday soldiers that fought, everyday battles that complained. They didn't like it all the time. They get defeated many times. They're just your common, ordinary, garden-variety combat soldier in any army uh, around the world. Then you have the mighty men of valor. The difference between the common ordinary, the common ordinary soldier in that time and the mighty men of valor was a warrior mentality. The mighty men of valor had a focus. The mighty men of valor knew what they were fighting for. They understood exactly what was the cost was. And in this sickly, disease-ridden church age, There will be all the babies with the thumbs in their mouth, the mediocre Christians, and then there'll be the men and the women, even though there's not a lot of them today, there'll be the men and the women who have substance and have the durability. They're able to meet any challenge. They're able to get into any circumstance. They're they're able to face anything that comes their way, and they come out on top. Because they're not your average Christian. They're not your mediocre, your Christian. These are a cut above the rest. These kind of people have a warrior mentality. They know they're in a war. They know there's in a battle. They know that millions and millions of souls hang in the balance. They understand the consequences of not being a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Anybody know here? Anybody, anybody here know the story of or heard of a guy by the name of Lieutenant Onana? Anybody? You, John, has? Joe, Joe has? Anybody else? I, I've come across this story a number of years ago, and it's always been one of my favorite stories. Lieutenant Anana was a Japanese lieutenant, and he was in the Japanese Army 
before World War II broke out in the intelligence division. And he went to the Philippines about 1938 to 39, 40, to spy on the American forces that were there. Well, you know what happened on December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The next day, they attacked, uh, uh, they attacked Alaska on the, uh, uh, on the far side of Alaska. They attacked Wake Island, and they invaded the Philippines. And uh, the Philippines, you know the story. General MacArthur, you know, uh, took off and went to Australia and left those guys all there by themselves. And uh, Batan and Corregidor, in time, they all capitulated and went into pr- prison and a tremendous thing. But the Japanese had the Philippine Islands. Well, under MacArthur, they came back around 44. And they attacked and they tried to take the Philippines back. Well, Lieutenant Onana got cut off from his troops. And much of it was fighting in the mountains. And Lieutenant Onana, we took the Philippines back. We dropped the bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and the war was over. But Lieutenant Onana never got the word that the war was over. Listen to me now. He stayed in those mountains of the Philippine Islands another 29 years fighting the war. It wasn't until 1974 that he capitulated and quit fighting. He was out of bullets. He was out of everything, out of clothes. He came down and threw rocks at the American soldiers. He made spears out of bamboo. Nobody wanted to shoot him because the war had been long over. They put up loudspeakers, put out leaflets. He wouldn't quit for anything. They got people to come out in Japanese and tell him the war was over. He didn't believe them. They put out food with leaflets on the cans. Surrender, the war's over, go home. He wouldn't quit. You know what they had to do? They had to go back to Japan and find his commanding officer that was still alive, fly him to the Philippine Islands, and he had to go out in the jungle and find him to get that guy to quit. Now, you want substance and durability? There it is. And I met some of God's people to get in one business meeting or somebody says something in the pulpit and they get their nose better than a joint and they leave the church. He did it for a pagan emperor. Do you hear me? He did it for a pagan emperor who lived in Tokyo that everybody thought was a god that he worshipped. We serve the living God. He lives inside us and we can't stand for 15 minutes. But yet, in spite of that, I still believe in his inspirational milk toast baby formula Christianity that there's still men and women with substance. I believe it. Men and women who want to be principled have a solid value system, and they want to have that. They don't get easily swayed by popular opinion. They have a good rule over their own spirit, like Proverbs says. They don't get caught up very quickly in what they want over what God wants. They're men and women who understand the concept of enduring a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And when you find them, they're like the people in Proverbs 17, 17. They're brothers that are born for adversity. They have a warrior mentality. Men and women who don't get their nose out of joint or easily offended. Because they see the higher calling that what we all have. 
They're flexible. They're adaptable. They're compatible. They're durable. All the drama and the theatrics, they're all about me, all centered around me. Look at me and my problem. It's not there with these people. Men and women, and you heard me say this many, many times, who in this Laodicean church age will stand up and take it as a Philadelphian Christian. And you know why? Because they have substance and they're durable. And without any question, the mark of that time period was simply two things. If you know anything about church history, they, brother, had substance and they were durable. They didn't whine, they didn't complain, they didn't quit, and they didn't sell God out because they knew that God was everything to them. And Christianity today, for the most part, have none of these things. I I, I told you from the beginning, this church by design is nothing more than a recruiting station. It's all it is. It's a recruiter station that offers men and women uh, an opportunity who are of substance and have durability and want to be developed. They want to take those raw, basic skills that God invested in them, and they want to turn it into a profit. They want to bring a revenue for God. Now, I'll be honest with you. You want a nice, soft, easygoing, non-offensive, cushy church? A church that has a nice, gives you a nice fuzzy feeling of teaching in milk toast Bible. Little sermonettes by little preacherettes. They remind me of those long horde steers down in Texas. One point here, one point there, and a lot of bull in between. If you want a church that will not preach on sin, you're in the wrong place. If you're in a cheap church that will not take and hold a people accountable and teach them responsibility and accountable, you're in the wrong place. But if you do want, if there's anybody out there, out there under the sound of my voice this morning, hearing me today, and you don't want to be the norm, you don't want to be some fuzzy, lily little Christian that has no steel in your backbone. If you want to be God's man and God's woman and have the courage to take your stand, to handle your emotions. Take care of all the criticism and flack. Take care of all the people that clobber you. And wear it like a badge of honor. Amen. If you want to develop yourself, be principled in life, learn your Bible, be the man or the woman God wants you to be. If you want to, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, play the man for your God. Amen. If you want a Christianity on a, on a, on a level of, of, of the mighty men of valor or in our world today on a Navy SEAL level with all the structure and all the discipline and all the hard work and all the total dedication and commitment to the work of God, then you found your calling here. I'm looking for men and women with substance. Men and women that are durable. Now, I understand when you come in, not everybody's there. You got to have time to find yourself. But let's be honest. If you don't have the tools, you don't stick in the garage very long. I mean, it's just that simple. You'll find all kinds of issues and problems that you don't like. And at the end of the day, it all because, you know what? You went to jump school and you didn't make the grade. It's just that simple. But I understand people come in. They got to learn, they got to grow, they got to see it. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm looking for durable people who will last and not fade away. I'm not looking for the revolving door Christianity crowd. Hey, we're in a war. 
Millions of souls hang in the balance. And God has called us to this fight. I'm not looking for conscientious objectors. Someone said one time, the reason why you can't go to a good choir to sing on with Christian soldiers anymore because there's too many conscientious objectors in the choir. I'm looking for men and women with red blood, royal blood, God's blood in their veins. 99% of God's men today, when it comes to red-blooded courage, they're so anemic, they can be a stand-in for the walking dead. The bottom line today, with all our excuses and our justification for what we want to do or don't want to do, comes down to one simple basic problem. We have no substance. No substance. I look at some of you young men and some of you guys. I look at some of you young ladies. And I remember when you came in. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't disciple your own children. You couldn't win your own kids to Christ. You couldn't disciple anybody. You knew nothing about the Bible. Boy, boy, what four or five years the difference it makes in your life. Look at you now. Look at where you're at now. Look what God's done with you now. And it isn't because that I'm such a great preacher and a great teacher. It isn't because this church is unlike any other church on the planet. It isn't any of that stuff. It's the bottom line is simply this. You had inside you stability and durability. It just needed to be developed. You need some old hard-nosed drill sergeant to kick you in the seat of the pants or not lest you rest on your loyals. You need somebody to motivate you. You need somebody to get you up in the morning. You need somebody to get you to stand in formation in the morning. You need somebody to get you and tell you what you do here, where you go there, and when to do it and how much to do it. That's what you needed. And you responded to it. And God took that substance and that durability that was in you and made you something special. You're something special. You all have that. Everybody does. You may be on different levels and different stages, but let me tell you something. Everybody here can make the grade. Because if you can't, you don't stay very long. And this, without a doubt, I'm just being honest today. This is the greatest passion in my life is to be able to take men and women and build them for Christ with substance and durability for the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, I hope when the rapture comes, we don't just get caught with our thumb up in our mouth. I hope we're just not standing in the corner talking about, I didn't say it, so don't go there. But I sure was thinking about it. We don't want to get caught just standing around doing nothing, do we? No, sir. After what he did for you and for me. Amen. We want to be in the battle. We want the smoke. We want to love the smell of napalm in the morning. We want all of the battles thing around us. When I stand before God, hey, I made my mistakes. I failed a million times. I'm as worthless as can be. I don't ask God for anything other than one thing. When I stand there before him. With all of my human frailties and all of my stupidity and all my mistakes, I want to stand there with a sword with dents, cuts, scratches, dried blood, and a book that is ear-dog-eared and written and cried over and weeped over, and I want to stand there with some dents in my armor for him. You don't want to walk in there like a pristine Christian. You want to go in dirty, scruffy. You want to be in combat. You want to look like and smell like you just went through a war. Because you're in one. 
And yet there's another reason for my passion for you. And verse 21 says, And I will fill their treasures. Now you already know what I'm about to say here because you know this, because you're smart people. You know when you get the most out of life? It's when you put the most into life. It's one of the basic rules of life. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. I, I talk to people all the time, and they say, well, you know what, I, I go to church, but I just don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, they're not very friendly. Well, the, I understand that, and that may be true, but the Bible says, he that has friends showeth himself to be friendly. You only get something out of it put into it. I've had people in this church leave the church and say, well, you know what, we just don't fit in. Well, how, let me ask you a question. How do you fit in when you come to church after the service has already started, and you leave as soon as it's over? How do you fit in? You may fit into the parking lot, but you don't fit in here. And if you get here too late, you won't even fit into the parking lot. And I'm just telling you, and to get the most out of God, come on now, you got to put the most into God. And in spite of all I want to do with this church for God and make this church the investment of our pounds and our talents, that we can stand there faithful to him. Underneath all of that, beyond all of that, I want you, my people, to have the blessings that come in your life and your family and your relationship with your husband and your wife and your God that only come from staying in this fight and getting all the training that you could possibly get and build your substance. I want you to be so trained I want you to be so prepared. I want you to be so razor sharp that God could lift you up and drop you anywhere in this world for any reason or any purpose in any situation, and you could get the job done. And brother, many of you could do that today. But you know as well as I do in the world we live in called Christianity, not everybody wants that. I get it. But I want you to also get this. That won't stop me from waiting to 20 or 30 that don't want it, find one or two that do. Because it's like panning for gold, and you got to go through a lot of dirt until you find those couple nuggets. And brother, there's some nuggets that God brings our way. It's just that simple. A brother born for adversity. Now let me say this to you in closing. I'm going to give you some good advice from a crazy old man. Let me give you some advice from somebody that's been in a few battles. In the book of Joshua, chapter 12, you don't have to turn to it. Just listen to me now. In the book of Joshua, chapter 12, after they go into the land, I had a guy tell me one time, he was in a Bible study. It wasn't here. It was someplace else. He says, he says, he asked me, he said, you know what? I read this chapter, Joshua chapter 12. And he says, I think it's got to be the most boring chapter in all the Bible. And when he said that, I thought, and I never answered him back because, you know, he's, he's doesn't know what he's talking about. But I, I listened to him when he said that. And I thought to myself, boy, that is so typical of modern 20 days. That is probably, Joshua chapter 12 was probably one of the most pronounced key chapters for me personally and for you if you ever figure it out in all of the Bible. Now we know that Joshua means Jesus. And we know that the book of Joshua and the battles they fight inspirationally, it's a picture of 
the battles you and I fight every day. And you're going to find that, you know, you got Joshua, who's the leader, who's the type of Christ, and you got everybody following the leader through the battles. He's always at the forefront. He's always leading them. He's always giving them the commands. And then after the book of Joshua, at some point, they go into the land. And, of course, that's a picture of, of our coming before the Lord inspirationally and getting in our inheritance. But in chapter 12, right in the middle of all this, he stops and he reviews all the battles that they have fought. And just scanning through the chapter, there's 31 kings they defeated and over 60 major conflicts and battles that they had. And the first thing I saw from that is God was keeping a record of the battles that they fought. And I want to tell you something. Every day of your life, you're faced with an engagement. Not talking about one with a ring. I'm talking about one with a book. That you stand in the gap for God in something. And there'll be a battle raging around you that you have to fight your way out and fight your way through. Sometimes we have to do it as a church, but most assuredly every day you'll do it as an individual. And I want to tell you that God is keeping a record of those battles. You know, in the military, and I, I don't know if you know this or not, some of you military guys will, that there's a way to read a soldier. You can tell where he's been by, by the medals and the ribbons that he has on his chest. You take a guy that's just out of basic, you know, he'll have no chevrons on his sleeve, and all he'll have is a ribbon bar. It's probably a national defense, which is a little red and yellow one that he got. Everybody gets that just from going to basic and going into military. If he's been in the Army for four or five years or six or seven and been through some campaigns, his, his left side of his chest looked like an Army-Navy store. But if you know what you're reading, you can tell exactly where he's been and exactly what he's done. The most coveted award, I'm not sure they still give it anymore in the Army that we have today, but what he did started in, in, in World War II, went up through Korea, was up through Vietnam, and probably even in the Gulf War. I don't know if they do it now anymore. But the, the most coveted award that a combat infantryman could ever hope to attain was a little bar about that long and about that high, blue background color of infantry with a musket on it with laurel wreaths on top and bottom. It's called a CIB, Combat Infantryman Badge. Every combat soldier, that was the coveted badge that he wanted. Because it stated when he wore that on his chest that he'd been in World War II, it was like 60 days of continuous hand-to-hand combat that he went through. Vietnam, I think it was less than that. But they, they issued them all out. That was the most coveted thing that a combat soldier, the only ones that got it were infantry. Artillery didn't get it. Signal guys didn't get it. Infantry got it. And that was the most coveted badge that they could have. A little higher than that, and along with that, the next level up was the parachute wings, showing somebody had been to jump school, and it was a qualified paratrooper, even the 82nd or the 11th Airborne or the, or the 101st, and they wore that with pride. On the ribbon bar, you could see the European theater, and for every battle he was in, there'd be a star in that little campaign medal. I've seen them where they had eight or nine stars on it. And then if they were in an invasion, there'd be a little bronze arrowhead that go on there, meaning they were in Normandy or North Africa or the Philippines, wherever they made an invasion. If he was wounded, he'd have the Purple Heart Ribbon. If he was, if he was a good, good soldier, he'd have a good conduct medal. You know what that looks like. 
If he, if he won a silver star or a bronze star, he'd have that ribbon on there. And if he had a V on that, on that a bronze star, it meant that he was extended in great valor, a V for valor. And when you look at that soldier, you could tell where he's been and everything that he's done. And you can tell a real combat vet from a kid just out of basic. You can read his uniform, see the hash marks, the ribbon bars, his CIB, his jump wings, or his glider assault wings, whatever he had, and you know that that guy was a combat vet. I've always thought it interesting that in the middle of this chapter with Joshua, after they go into the land, that God takes the time and go back and recounts all the battles and all the kings that they fought and they defeated. And I want to say to you today, in closing, before we stand before our commander-in-chief, and we are going to, my advice to you, get some combat ribbons on that uniform. Get your CIB. Around here, you can get your Navy SEAL clasp. You can get your jump wings. You can get your ranger tab. You can go farther and beyond more here than you probably in most churches because we're looking for that militant mentality, that warrior mentality. We train you here like they train them down at Fort Benning, Georgia or Fort Bragg or, Camp, or Fort Campbell. We train you here to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ because you need to be durable and you also need to have substance. Three words for you today. To be durable. Holding the line and not quitting, giving up, not selling out, <clears throat> taking the hits of this old world and keep on moving to higher ground. The word revenue, making good investments with your life and your life skills that God has given you. He's given to each of us the measure of faith from which we develop that from walking by sight and circumstances to walking by faith and overcoming our circumstances. Substance. Ah, the word substance. A face like flint. Legs like marble. A backbone of steel. And loins girt about with truth. Proverbs 24.10 says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. And it's all based on what you do fundamentally with the leading of God in your life through the righteous way, the paths of judgment, the principles that show us what's right and what's wrong and then give us the leading of the Lord in those things. Remember, take this with you as you leave today. God never leads outside his principles. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, you have a great story. It's a story about two men. One built his house on a rock. One built his house on the sand. And it's a cute little story to read in a great little Sunday school lesson, but the application is very, very clear for you and for me today. You're either going to build your house on the rock or you're going to build it on the sand. And the thing I want you to notice in that story, that when the wind came, it came to both houses. Just because you're saved, just because you love God, because you love that book, doesn't mean you're not going to be in the storm. 
That wind and that storm came to both houses. The difference is that one stood to test and stood, the other one collapsed. One was built on a rock. That's the word of God. It was durable. It had substance to it. The other one was built on the shifting sands of this world. And it collapsed. Build your house. Build your body. Build yourself on the Bible doctrine of the Word of God. And when the wind and the rain comes, you'll stand the test because you'll be durable and you'll be made of substance. Well, let's have a word of prayer and we'll hold up there and 